I was uh, in junior high, and, and I grew up going to a small Christian school that was connected to my church back home in Muskogee. And uh, I remember this one day and where, where my younger brother came up to me, who was also at that school, came up to me to tell me that he and his, some of his buddies had started a new club. Oh, wait just a minute. I'm, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I knew I was going to do this. Let me turn your attention real quick to the video. Um, hold that thought. Club, my brother, keep it in your mind, but first turn to this video so it can fill us in on the context. Here's what you need to know as we continue our story today. When we last saw the Israelites, they were beginning their conquest of the land of Canaan. The promise that had been given to their forefathers so long ago was finally coming to fruition. They would have a land of their own. But the promise came with commands. Before Moses died, he told the Israelites that they were to drive out all the current inhabitants of the land, completely destroying their culture. God knew that if the people of Canaan were allowed to stay and live among his people, they would eventually become a snare to the Israelites, enticing them to the worship of false gods and other wicked practices. Unfortunately, Israel did not obey this command. In many parts of the land, they allowed the original inhabitants to stay, and they allowed their culture and religion to live on. This would have tragic ramifications for the people of God. I know you're all waiting on the edge of your seats to find out about this now. Well, my brother Lane came up to me and he told me he had started this club and it was called the Blood and Guts Club. Now, I know that sounds like the awesome name for some underground fight club, but I assure you it's not nearly that cool. Uh, this was a club, it wasn't actually even a club, and I think it lasted about a week and a half or something like that, but it was this thing where he and a group of his friends would get together and they tried to see who could find the bloodiest, most violent, grossest story in the Bible, okay? I know what you're thinking, why? And the answer is because that's the kind of weird stuff you do when you're a junior high or in a small Christian school, all right? And so, so they go searching for these stories, and Lane comes up and he tells me this, and I remember when he told me this, I remember going, dude, have I got the book for you? I've got, man, you've got to check out the book of Judges. Judges, I remember telling him, Judges is awesome, man, because you've got guys getting their heads nailed to the floor with tent pegs. You've got kings that are so obese that when, when dudes stab them, like the sword, everything, handle and everything goes all the way through them. You've got um, people getting their eyes gouged out as punishment. You've got people getting chopped up in their body parts, kind of shipped out places. And, and I remember being so excited to share all this vital and important information with my brother um, about this incredible book that he needed to check out. His stories were going to blow everybody else's out of the water. I loved the book of Judges when I was in junior high. Um, because you got to understand, when you're a preacher's kid going to a small Christian school back in the 90s, um, the book of Judges is as close as you can get to a rated R movie without getting grounded, right? <laughs> so I was all over that book, right? I, like I knew, it, I knew it top to bottom because I could read and I could talk about that stuff. And if my parents, you know, overheard me and tried to get on to me, and you know, what are you talking about in there? I could just be like, the Bible, Right? Jesus Jukum right there with that. And, and so, uh, so I loved, 
I loved being able to kind of read through the book of Judges. It, it, it was an exciting book for me. And, and the truth is, it still is. You read through this book, it is one of the more entertaining books in the Bible. It's a book um, of incredible heroics, and it's a book of an amazing amount of action and violence and intrigue and plot twists. It is a very entertaining book. It's also, I've come to realize more recently, a very sad book. One of the saddest in the Bible, maybe. And the reason why is because Judges is a vivid picture of people at their worst. And not just any people, God's people at their absolute worst. And what really makes this sad is that it's, it's at a time when they should have been at their best. It's at a time when this promise that they had been waiting for for so long to finally get in the land, they, they have it now. They have a place of their, their own. This is what our series has kind of been driving towards, right? The gospel of the law and the land. And one could be forgiven when you read through the story of Israel making its way through the wilderness. One could be forgiven for thinking that their major problem was that they did not have those two things. And therefore, that was their major solution. I mean, it, it makes sense that as soon as they cross the Red Sea, almost right after that, they're making a golden calf, an idol to fall down and worship. After all, they don't have the law yet to tell them not to do those things, right? Right? It makes sense that they would complain and grumble and moan and rebel all the way through the wilderness. I mean, they're in the wilderness. They don't have a place to call their own, a home of their own. Now we see that they have both of those things, the law and the land, and they're the same Israel. Actually, they're worse than they were before. And that's what makes this so crazy. And that's what reveals to us that Israel's major issue was not anything external, any extra circumstances around them or any other uh, need that they had outside of themselves. Israel's major issue was an internal one. It was their own stubborn, hardened hearts. That was the problem. And so they go into the land, and as the video says, God told them that they were to wipe out the other people and destroy them in their culture completely. Now, on a side note, this is a section of Scripture that a number of people struggle with. Hard to get our minds around a God who would command his people to go in and destroy a bunch of other people, to wipe them out. Um, if, if you listen to our podcast, consider this question, kind of the staff podcast that Sunnybrook puts out periodically. In, in the next week or two, we're actually going to tackle this question. What do we do with all the violence in the Old Testament? But for now, let me just kind of say this for the sermon. It needs to be recognized that we're not talking about a, a group of innocent, um, peace-loving, um, keep-to-themselves people when, when we're talking about the Canaanites. We're talking about a people of deep wickedness, people who were engaged in all kinds of perversity and immorality, people who turned exploitative practices like prostitution into acts of worship, people who were offering their own infant sons and daughters as sacrifices to false gods by burning them alive. And, and maybe worst of all, although this is the one that bothers us the least, is that they were a people who had, for their entire history, rejected the very God that created them and deserved all of their worship. 
This is the kind of people that are living in Canaan, and these are the kinds of detestable practices that Yahweh knows will infect his people unless they rid the whole land of it. And so he commands them to do that, and they don't. They leave some of the people around, and sure enough, those practices start to make their way into Israel. Now, you can actually, you you can see how this might happen. Because the people of Israel have been wandering for 40 years in the desert with no home, no land of their own. And before that, for as far back as they can remember, they were slaves in Egypt. And here they arrive in this beautiful land um, full of bounty with these incredible harvests, incredible crops there, and, and a number of large and elaborate cities. And it could be very easy for an Israelite to walk in there and be greatly impressed and to think to themselves, whatever these people were doing before we got here, it was working for them. And especially in a day where uh, deities were largely seen to be kind of tied to locales and to particular nations. And so it would make sense that if these people were worshiping Baal, the storm god, and he was bringing all this rain and bringing this incredible harvest and flourishing their cities and their culture so much, it only makes sense for us to try to stay on good terms with that same god. And so they slowly begin to give themselves into those practices. Maybe not even completely rejecting Yahweh and pushing him aside. More likely kind of hedging their bets. And let's just offer sacrifices to both and try to keep both of them on our side. It doesn't work that way though, as you know. And they continually engage in these practices, running from God. And time and time again, they reap the consequences of those actions. Time and time again, they are punished and they fall into the hands of their enemies. And time and time again, they cry out to God for help. And time and time again, he comes and saves them. Over and over and over again, you'll see this in the book of Judges. In fact, uh, most scholars will tell you that Judges is laid out in a bit of a pattern or a cycle, if you will, that plays itself over and over and over again through the entire book. It goes like this. The Israelites turn away from God. They sin against him and engage in the practice of false uh, idols and and worship and all these other things. And, And in that process, God hands them over to their enemies and they reap the consequences of the punishment of that until they come to their senses and realize their need for God. They cry out to him and then God over and over again raises up a judge. That's why it's called the book of Judges. Raises up a judge who comes and delivers the people on God's behalf. And then they go right back to their sin and jump into it all over again. It's a cycle that plays itself out over and over again through this book. We're going to get a chance to actually see this cycle in our passage today. Judges 4 and 5. That's where we are today. If you've got your Bible, you can go there. We'll primarily be in Judges 4. And here's why. Because what you have in Judges 4 and 5 is uh, two different tellings of the same story. Two different tellings with two different genres. So Judges 4, you have a straightforward narrative, historical telling of Deborah and Barak and this battle they have with Canaan. 
Judges 5 is a poetic retelling of that same story in which the people of Israel sing this song to God after it's been done. So it's the same story. We'll mostly be in 4, but every now and then chapter 5 kind of fills us in on some extra details. And so we'll look into that here and there. Judges 4, starting in verse 1, says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh after Ehud died. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years years. So you see this line here to start at Kyle referenced it at the very beginning of the service. Again, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh. That's the third time that this phrase has been mentioned and we're only four chapters into the book and it will come up multiple times after this. And I mentioned to you just a little bit ago that after they cry out to God, the pattern is that God steps in and raises up a judge to save them. But, but steps in really isn't quite the right term for it because that implies that he was somehow disengaged before. Our story here tells us, and the rest of Judges tells us, that he is active throughout the entire process. It is God who is handing them over to the Canaanites in the first place. It is God who's punishing their sin by doing that. And they are oppressed by the king of Canaan and by his general Sisera and his 900 chariots. So cruelly oppressed, chapter 5 will tell us that the highways during this period of time were abandoned. No one dared to travel on the main roads anymore. Instead, they tried to find little baggers because it was not safe for the Israelites. It also says the villagers ceased to exist, basically meaning that village life Life, life as you knew it stopped being, stopped being that way, and no one was able to live a normal life anymore because of all the cruel oppression of the Canaanite kings around them. It says that Sisera had 900 chariots, which during this time in the late bronze period would have been a major advantage in military, a big advance in technology, something kind of like 900 tanks on his side. And so it was very, e or very difficult to overcome the odds that they were against. Verse 4 says this, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out by the river Kishon, or I will draw out Sisera, the general Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So we see these two characters. The first is Deborah, <clears throat> who is actually the only female judge that is mentioned throughout the entire book, and one of the only female leaders we actually ever see in the Old Testament. She also has the distinction of being like the only judge that appears to be godly. Um, at least fully godly. That's kind of the weird things about the book of Judges is there are all kinds of heroes who rise up to deliver God's people. Very few of them are the kinds of people that you would want to model your life after. 
But Deborah is, she's a prophetess and she leads the people with wisdom and into the will of God. And she calls for Barak who comes and he is evidently a known warrior of the area. And she calls for him and summons him and gives him these instructions telling that God wants to deliver the people through him. She gives him these two sets of instructions. The first really makes sense. And that is assemble 10,000 soldiers at Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor being this kind of thing, this uh, this mountain that kind of juts out into the land and there would have been a number of, uh, a, a bunch of space up top to gather a big group. But it's also a very steep mountain with very craggy terrain, which means there are no chariots getting up there. So that makes a lot of sense. Now the second part, at least at first glance to me, doesn't seem to make very much sense. And that is that you're going to go down that mountain and meet Sisera by the river Kishon. And the river Kishon sat in an area of plains, Flatland, which is perfect for chariots. But she calls him to go and do that. He evidently is a little bit hesitant about it. Here is what he says in verse 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. So Deborah, or, or Barak seems to lack a little bit of faith that what Deborah said is going to happen will actually happen. He says, okay, I'll go, but I'm not going without you. I'm not going without the prophetess on my side, without the leader on my side. It appears that he may not fully trust for this all to work out without her. Kind of interesting, though, because in Hebrews 11, Barak is actually mentioned amongst those heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. It would seem that, according to the writer of Hebrews, that even an imperfect faith that is still obedient is worth recognizing and worth honoring. So Barak asked Deborah to go with him, and she says she will, but a woman will get the glory for this. Now we come on a seemingly random verse that has nothing to do with what we've just read and doesn't really have anything to do with the verse that comes after it, verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So... For all of you who've been wondering this whole time, yeah, but what about Heber the Kenite? Now you know, okay? Good to know about Barak and Deborah, but tell me, where's that Heber the Kenite living? By Zananim. Now you know. And now back to our story. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hegayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 
So this tells us that Deborah sins back down. He goes down and attacks Sisera. And it says this, that God is the one who defeated that decimated Sisera and his troops. But it doesn't actually give us a lot of details as to how that actually takes place which is where we go to Judges 5, because Judges 5, um, verses 4 and 5, kind of fills us in on some of that information. Here's what it says. Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before Yahweh, even Sinai before Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then if you go further down into verse 21, it says this. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So what appears to have happened is as Barak makes his way down the mountain into the plains to fight with Sisera, that God sends an incredible storm. And that storm causes the river Kishon to flow out over its banks, muddying up the entire field in which they are fighting so that Barak and all his chariots end up getting stuck in the mud. And, and this would explain why Barak, when he's trying to get away, doesn't stay in his chariot but instead it says he flees on foot, trying to run away, trying to get away. And, and as this happens, all the army of Sisera is destroyed as, Bear, or as Sisera makes his way trying to run away. Now we get to the blood and guts club. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of jail, the wife of Heber the Kenite. That's why we were told where he's at. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. So he flees and he comes to this area where Heber the Kenite and his settlement is, knowing that there's peace between his king and Heber. And so he goes and he hides in the tent of Jael, his wife, uh, Heber's wife. And, and the plan is to lay low there until everything kind of passes and then get up and go home. It's a good plan all until this next verse. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And then we get to what seems like an unnecessary sentence to me. So he died. <laughs> Just in case you weren't sure, okay? Just in case you didn't know. That tends to kill people. <laughs> and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Um, the very, at the very end of chapter 5, we see one extra kind of line that, that sums this up. 
Chapter 5, verse 31 says this, and the land had rest for 40 years. So after 20 years of all of this, God delivers them, and then they end with 40 years of rest and of peace. This is a good story. It's a, it's a fun story. It's got all those things I mentioned at the beginning, action and violence and plot twists and drama and all of those things. It's a great story, but, but here's the question. What's the point? Like, why, why is it in here? What does God want his people to get from this, and why are we preaching from it today? What's the point of Judges 4 and 5? Well, Judges... Four does teach us a few different things. First of all, it teaches us some things about God. And, and I know that maybe goes without saying that Judges 4 teaches us about God, but I think it needs to be said. Because we have a tendency sometimes, the Old Testament is full of so many cool stories and these amazing heroes of the faith that we sometimes have a tendency to focus in so closely on those actual heroes and, and what we can learn from them that we fail to recognize the true hero of the story. Like, the protagonist of Judges 4 is not Deborah. And it's not Barak, and it's not Jael. The protagonist, the, the real hero of Judges 4, is God. And it's all about him and what he's doing. You read through that chapter again. He pops up time and time again. It is God who has handed Israel over to the Canaanites. It is God who summons Barak to this battle. It is God who says he will draw Sisera out into the battle. It is God who sends the storm. It is God who subdues Jabin and rescues his people. This is a story about God. And as we read through this chapter and we notice his activity, we can learn something some things about him. First thing is this, that God takes sin seriously, and he's serious about it. The writer wants us to know from the get-go, the reason that Israel is oppressed by the king of Canaan is not because of Sisera's 900 chariots. It's not because there's a greater amount of soldiers on Canaan's side. It's not because they've got greater strategy um, when it comes to military operations. No, ultimately, primarily, the reason Israel is enslaved to Canaan is because they rejected God, and so God was punishing them. He was behind this. God takes sin so seriously, especially in his people, that he is willing to, time and time again, hand them over to even worse people in order to punish and discipline those people. He's got no problem doing that. And he does that here because their sin is an offense to him and his glory, and they get what they deserve when they turn from him. But here's the other thing that we see about God in this story, and it really is important for us to be able to hold both of these truths together at the same time without compromising on one. The second thing we learn about God is that he shows mercy to sinful people. So the story says that they are oppressed by Canaan for 20 years and then they recognize they're wrong and they get their act together and then God comes and saves them, right? No. They don't get their act together. It says that they recognize basically their problem and they cry out to God. That's it. 
They cry out in the midst of their sin and in the midst of the consequences of that sin, they cry out and in his mercy and in his compassion, he comes and he delivers them from the punishment that they rightfully deserve that they should be getting, he comes and takes it away from them. He is merciful to them, even in the midst of their sin. This story also teaches us about people, though. And everything you need to know about this issue is pretty well summed up in the verse that comes right after it. So I mentioned to you earlier that it ends with this in 531, that the land had rest for 40 years. So after the people sin and after they cry out to God and he delivers them and there's this incredible miraculous story and this amazing work is done in Israel and they finally free themselves because God is at work within them and they come to this place where they have rest for 40 years and here's what the very next verse says, chapter six, verse one, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So after all of that, they're right back where they started. What this story teaches us about people, what Judges teaches us about people, is that they are chronically rebellious. That it is so deep in them that their nature is to just push away from God and to continue to walk further and further from him. And then when they're saved by him, to be grateful and then to go right back to it. It's that cycle we described at the beginning, only cycle really isn't the greatest word for it. Because Judges 2, which is kind of a summary of the whole book and how it's going to unfold, says that they did not just go back to their sin whenever they were saved. It says in Judges 2 that they actually go deeper into their sin every time. So that they're not actually cycling in and out of sin, they're spiraling deeper down into it. That's the story of Judges that they dig into their sin and they reap the consequences of that and they cry out and he saves them and then they just go deeper over and over and over again. It is crazy. How does that happen? How do they continue to do the very things that got them in trouble in the first place? How do they um, consistently go back to that life of sin? probably a lot of different ways you can answer that. But I think one of the biggest issues is their failure to do what we just said a moment ago, and that is to hold both of those two truths about God together. That is, yes, it is true that God shows mercy to sinful people, but that does not negate the fact that God takes sin seriously that he does punish sin. Those two things must be held together. And Israel seems to struggle to understand this. See, I read to you these two verses, 531, and then the land had peace and rest for 40 years, and 6-1, and then Israel entered into sin again, did what was wicked in the sight of Yahweh. Now, don't read those two verses as though they are two separate, distinct steps, because that's not really how it works in Scripture and let's be honest, that's not really how it works in our lives today. As though, you know, Israel was faithful to God for 40 years and then one day they just decided to go back to Baal worship and then the very next day God hands them over to Midian. 
Well, that's not how it works. Now, see, we tend to ease our way into sin, don't we? And so more realistically, what you probably have taking place is, yes, God gives the land rest for, uh, gives the land rest for 40 years. And, and probably at the beginning, most of the people were probably trying to do the right thing and were repentant and wanted to follow Yahweh. But then, you know, six, seven years into that, some of them start to slowly turn back to some of their former ways of life. Back to the worship of Baal. Back to some of those detestable, perverse practices. And, and they do these things and they worship him and they do wickedness and they oppress um, the poor and the defenseless. And then you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. There's no Canaanite army that comes storming through their city. There's no famine that comes in overnight and decimates all of their crops. Everything is fine. And so they move a little further into their sin, a little deeper into those practices, five, six, seven years later, and still nothing happens. And 10 years later, and still nothing has happened. In fact, this year was better than ever. We had an incredible harvest, and we seem to be prospering and thriving. And, and so they continue on, and you can see how easy it would become for Israel to take all of this peace and prosperity as a sign of God's favor, or at least his indifference towards their sin, when in reality it was a sign of his patience towards them and his mercy towards them. And they could not see it. And so they continue down the same path over and over and over again. And consistently they end up punished, suffering under the hands of their enemies until they cry out and he saves them. And then they go right back to where they were over and over and over again. It's insane. It's crazy. But it's not uncommon. And unfortunately, it's not unique to Israel. No, this is, this is actually like the story of the world. This is the story of humanity. We all have this same tendency inside of us to view peace and prosperity and blessing as though it is God's indifference to our sin when in reality it is, it is his good and great mercy in our lives and we don't even recognize it. To think that because everything seems to be going good for me that that must mean that God and I are good and everything's going there and he's cool as long as I kind of stay out of his way, he stays out of my way, we're good. Or, or when crisis comes in my life, when my health is taken away from me or when I am overcome by the guilt of my sin or maybe just the consequences of my sin, in that crisis, then yeah, it's natural for me in my desperate state to cry out to God and tell him how much I need him and then when everything is fixed to go right back to where I was again. That's the tendency of everybody. 
That's the tendency of all of us. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 3, those first three chapters deal with this universal reality of sin, that it is something that all of us are enslaved in, and all of us have this natural tendency left to ourselves to only push ourselves away from God. And in Romans 2, Paul is having this kind of dialogue with this imaginary opponent, this fictitious opponent who is kind of a representation of everyone. And he's talking to this person saying, do you not recognize, can't you see that you are heaping up judgment for yourself by the way you live? When you look around at everybody else and you judge their sin and you see how bad they are and you don't even recognize it in yourself, don't you see that judgment is coming? Or, Paul says in Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, this is what Paul says, and this is what the Bible consistently paints for us. And that is that every good thing that exists in my life, my spouse, my kids, the roof over my head, and the food on my table, all of that is grace. Undeserved gift from God. And I am not owed any of that. The very next breath I take is not owed to me. It is grace. It is a gift from him. And if my heart was in the right place, then that thought, that understanding ought to drive me to a greater level of love for him, to a greater level of repentance in my sin that says, I don't want this. I want the good and merciful God who is kind to me even in the midst of my sin. But the problem is with the world that there is this broken and rebellious and hardened heart in people that causes them to do just the opposite. To use that grace as a license to continue in their sin. To move on knowing that I haven't been punished yet so I guess I can keep doing this and, and Paul makes it clear that when people live like this they are merely storing up greater wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. It is true as the Bible says over and over again that God is slow to anger but that doesn't mean he never gets there. That doesn't mean anger will never come. That doesn't mean punishment will never come problem is that so few people are able to see this because, as I mentioned, we are left to ourselves in our own sin nature, chronically rebellious. So, one last question. What's the remedy for that? How do we change this? If, if this is true, if this is the story of humanity that we only get worse and worse and continue to spiral our way down into our sin and into our depravity, how do we ever change that? Whatever steps in and makes things different? The writer of Judges seems to have an opinion on what that is. And that opinion comes in the way he ends his book. You see, after 
the writer describes over and over again the depravity and the wickedness of Israel and the chaos of that land and all the sinful, um, idolatrous practices of them over and over again, especially towards the end. You see people at their worst, worst, worst. At the very end of it, the writer closes with this one final verse as, as sort of a summary for everything that he said. It comes in Judges 21, verse 25, and it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, according to the book of Judges, the the problem with God's people in this book, the reason they continue down the path they are is because they had no king. They had no leadership. They had no one to come in before them and direct them down the right path and and lead them in the way that they should go. They had no one who would stand up for what is right and make them do what they ought to do. And so it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone lived how they wanted to. And so they continued to spiral and they continued to suffer. But the way this last verse is put kind of almost implies this question, leads us to ask this question, what if that were to change? What if one day God were to give his people the thing that they so desperately needed? What if one day he were to actually give them the king they needed, a good king, a right king, a king that would lead them in truth and righteousness and justice, a king who would care for these people as a shepherd cares for his own sheep, a king who, just like God, would take sin seriously and yet would also be merciful to struggling sinners, a king who would do more than just change their external circumstances, giving them more laws and more land and more motivation to try to change, but a king who could actually go to the very root of the problem and change the thing that is most broken within them, their own rebellious, sinful hearts. A king who would create an entirely new kind of people and an entirely new kind of world who would one day make everything right again. It's our practice here at Sunnybrook to always have men and women waiting down here at the front to be able to continue this conversation for those of you who want to. If, if as you listen to God's word today being, being spoken, if, if you resonate with that, that idea of a downward spiral that you cannot escape from, If you're interested in hearing more about this king, then there will be people here who would love to talk or would love to pray for you um, or or whatever it is that we might be able to help you with. Uh, We love you guys. You are dismissed, and we'll see you next week.